The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. If we had an extremely controlling parent or even a narcissistic parent that always clomped down on us what they were right, we were wrong, we couldn't think what was wrong with us. If we encounter another person like that at work or through dating, we're going to get extremely triggered, not just by the person, but by the reminders from our childhood. However, if we have not dealt with these reminders that are still living inside of us, we'll just stay there and we'll keep interacting with that person until we get it, whether it's healthy or not. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work and how we can all do both better. One of my very first big moments in therapy was in my late 20s. My therapist told me that my mom and I had a codependent relationship. We were enmeshed. I lost myself trying to please her and make her happy, and she'd relied on me too much before I was ready. Codependency is a word most of us are familiar with, but what does it mean? What does it look like? And how does it affect us at work? In short, it's an unhealthy relationship where one person fixates on taking care of or controlling the other, forgetting their own needs. Boundaries fade away. Your source of comfort, love, identity, and satisfaction is external, which can leave you feeling empty inside. Maybe the phrase is, I'm a caretaker, I'm a people pleaser. Or even better, that famous line in Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Learning more about this concept proved really helpful in my own life. Because that kind of codependency didn't just exist in my relationship with my mother, but elsewhere, even at work. As an aside, my work at the time was on political campaigns, where codependency is pretty reinforced. And a lot of people can even become codependent with the candidate they're working for or the idea of the campaign itself. Our guest today is a longtime expert on codependency, and she's a household name in addiction and recovery circles. Melody Beattie wrote the international bestseller in 1986, introducing the word codependency to the larger world. And she's recently re-released that book, Codependent No More, with updates. She'll tell us how her thinking on the matter has evolved and why codependents can make such excellent employees. It's important to note, this concept is not without its critics. It can be individualistic. The focus Melody frames on not feeling like a victim seems to me out of place in the larger context of our society, living in systems that are toxic, that are biased, that are racist. But codependency is a valuable framing for many of us, a lens to better understand yourself, especially if you find yourself consistently feeling like you're giving too much, over-delivering, overworking, caring too much, that it's your job to save something or someone. You might feel like people don't listen to you or use you. 
I hope this episode will help. And I want to remind you that therapy can be a great option here. Let's jump in now with Melody Beattie. Let's start out. Language is so important. I'd love you to define codependency for the audience. Well, originally in Codependent No More, it was defined as, you know, being obsessed with somebody else's behavior. Hmm. But after everything I've been through in the last 40 years, I would describe it more as a profound inability to love ourselves Hmm. and put ourselves first ever, ever. Does codependency have to happen, though, in relation to another person? Well, I suppose we could get codependent on a pet. (laughs) But um, usually it does. Usually the triggers start in our childhood and then get accelerated by the people we meet in our adult lives. But it's, I mean, it can happen anywhere. It's anytime we close down, shut down and stop aligning with and loving ourselves. Mm. What brought you to a life of studying and writing about codependency? Can you tell us a little bit of of your own journey? Well, first I can tell you it was never my dream or ambition <laughs> to become queen of the codependence. <laughs> but my path to well-being, as many of us do, evolved into codependency. I went to treatment for my own addictions when I was 23 years old. Mm. I was there for eight months. And I was so remarkably changed that, like many other people who have started recovery, I wanted to help other people find what I had found. I wanted to work with addicts, the real people with the real problem. Mm. And so I took a course at the University of Minnesota where I was living back then. I got married and ultimately started working in a treatment center where my husband worked and was a director of. And I worked, as many women did back then, in an office position. That that was about all I could manage. An admin position. Yeah. And then one day the administrator of the program called me and and she said, in order to keep our funding, we've got to start doing something with the families. I said, you know, visions of working with my mother crossed my mind. Is is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. (laughs) And I thought, no, that is not what I want to do. It's absolutely not what I want to do. I said, I don't know anything about that. She said, well, we don't either. You're the new person here, so you get the job. Wow. So that started my destiny. (laughs) And then as I sat in the groups I was running, I began to see so many similarities between the people in the group and myself it began to profoundly impact me. And at that point, I think I realized, you know, I am my mother. (laughs) Oh, dear. And so are many of these people in the group. They have been so affected by someone else's behavior that they're completely obsessed with changing that person. And they don't 
see themselves and they don't see their own life. And slowly my interactions began to transform, not just the women in my group, but began to transform me. And I became obsessed with finding out what is this thing that can transform such brilliant, loving people into raving codependents. And that started my quest. Just getting the information took me about five years. Where does codependency come from? Well, many people attribute that to me, but that's not entirely true, although it's somewhat true. I did a very thorough job in Codependent No More. But people had just started whispering about it a little back then. The AA groups for people in Minnesota were coming alive. Young people were getting into AA and beginning to recover. But people weren't talking that much about codependency. There were a couple writers, isolated writers, doing more clinical Mm -hmm. exposés of the subject. And then, of course, good old Ernie Larson came along in Minnesota, and he started calling it like the second recovery. So, I mean, I was dealing with a hodgepodge of information and trying, as a good writer does, to organize it, run it through my own filters of what's true and what's not, and then present it in a meaningful way to my readers. So when you say you were you were your mother, what does that mean? Ugh. <laughs> In my case, it meant that all the controlling, all the anger, all the self-righteousness, and all the turning outward with my unhappiness, I would say, mm-hmm. that's how I became my mother. I, I didn't clinically become my mother, But there's a saying, I learned this in skydiving when they were teaching me how to land. They said, you go where you look. Mm. And if I live my life thinking, I don't want to marry someone like my dad, I don't want to be like my mom, what will happen? I'll end up being both or doing both. (laughs) We go where we look. We go where we focus on. So I needed to change my focus. And your mom was married to an alcoholic. She was married eight times. My dad was an alcoholic. He was only in my life for two years. And then I barely saw him again a couple times. He came to my son's funeral, but he never met him when he was alive. So, no, I did not have um, historical relationships with either of my parents. Hmm. This sounds like a silly question. What are the biggest downsides to codependency? I don't really know any upsides. Yeah. (laughs) Other than it will help protect us, or we think it will. Yeah. The biggest downside to codependency is we need to start taking responsibility for our own lives. We depend on other people. Mm-hmm. To do what for us? Whatever we can get them to do. Like, I'm unhappy. It's his fault I'm unhappy. It's her fault I'm unhappy. If she just stopped doing that, I would be happy. Our focus is totally outside of ourselves. <clears throat> and the only way we can truly ever, 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 ever change a problem is by going within. That's where our solutions are. They're not outside of ourselves. They're not the next block down. They're not by running all over town to every event. 
our solutions are inside us. We have a genius problem solver inside of us, but we, we don't hear it when we're scared, when we're anxious, when we're running all over. We can't hear our solutions. We can't align with ourself. Huh. I want to talk about codependency and work. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, we bring ourselves to work. <laughs> we do. In your experience, how does codependency show up at work most commonly? Well, we take ourselves wherever we go. And that's the biggest way it will show up. But there is so much focus on what the whole collective culture thinks of us right now. Mm -hmm. Am I good enough? Am I going to anger them? I don't want to start anything. I mean, that is, we can get so codependent on the cultural consciousness that we can barely talk sometimes. Can we get codependent on the cultural consciousness of the institution or the culture that we work for? Oh, or or the, the attitude that a boss creates on a team? Absolutely. All humans affect our energy field. We affect all other humans. I believe that over the last 20 years, many people have started working at places that they don't really align with for one reason or another. And then they may get too frightened to get out. They may not know how to stand up. I mean, you can't tell your boss what you think of him or her until you've handed in your resignation. <laughs> More than likely, it's going to create problems. So we don't have the same mode for expression that we would have in a personal relationship. Mm -hmm. The opposite of depression is expression. And when we can't express how we really feel, who we really are, and what's going on with us, we will begin to get depressed. So my guess is the first sign of codependency at work would begin with frustration, resentment, and a bit of depression on our parts. Oh, that's interesting. Depression because we are feeling stifled and controlled by others. We're not expressing ourselves. We're not expressing our anger, our sadness, our disappointment, any of those things. We just shut ourselves down and stepped into this matrix and we're going to work there and we're going to succeed. But we left ourselves somewhere else. You know, it's interesting because, you know, there's data showing that people who come from groups that traditionally have less status, right, or that are oppressed in society get anxious and depressed at work or when they're up against systems that do not allow them to be themselves, right? There's data that black people are more likely to have anxiety in the face of working in these systems that women do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what you're saying in that when we are stifled. Mm -hmm. When we're stifled, when we don't feel like it's okay to be who we are, whether or not we want to say that. But when the environment stifles and prohibits us from being like an independent person. Now, I don't suppose really they want a lot of independence at McDonald's from their employees, but mm. we need to find a balance between letting corporations rip the souls out of people and, you know, being a good employee. How do people who have a history of codependent relationships 
reenact them in other relationships, right? I mean, the relationships we form at work can be very powerful, but we also bring our historical patterns to those relationships. I know. And any pattern that we've really overdone well, like being a victim, we're Mm going to replay that. Mm-hmm. We're going to replay that. Our old stories are going to keep replaying until we change them. And we are the only human that can ever change our story. And so what have you seen? And I mean, you've been talking to people for decades about this. Most people come into their codependency through a real life power moment where something falls apart and they start waking up. Mm-hmm. It usually doesn't start occurring to us on slighter levels. I would say if there's one thing that brings people to their knees with codependency faster than anything else, it's uh, through their children. The other way that many codependents try to control is through thinking and worrying. (laughs) If I worry about this hard enough, if I think about this hard enough, I can somehow affect the outcome. It's just not true. I fall into that trap a lot. I'm a very mental energy person. And my latest goal is don't worry about anything. It doesn't help. (laughs) And that can be the hardest thing for us. I called up a friend one day about 30 years ago. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to figure something out. He said, no, you're not. You're trying to control it. And I went, bingo. He's right. I mean, I really abuse my own mind often. I'm trying not to do it so much. Abuse your own mind. Gosh, I've never heard worrying framed that way, but that's really powerful. Yeah, and it does powerful damage to us too. You know, we're not artificial intelligence. We're real humans with real souls and real emotions And as we end this pandemic and try to help build the new earth we're living on, it's just so important to stay aligned with our souls. We're so used to multitasking. Many of us can't remember how to do one thing at a time Mm -hmm. and be quietly present for that. I'm Jesse Hempel, host of Hello Monday. In my 20s, I knew what I wanted for my career. But from where I am now, in the middle of my life, nothing feels as certain. Work's changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of any of it. So every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. We talk about making career pivots, about purpose and how to discern it, about where happiness fits into the mix and how to ask for more money. Come join us in the Hello Monday community. Let's figure out the future together. Listen to Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What does learning to let go of the desire to control look like? How does it start? Again, we get out by going in. Mm -hmm. We can become so attached to so many different things and so many different people. Usually our sources of attachment or trouble is with people and interactions that remind us of our original wound mm. that we haven't resolved yet. So we will find these people in these situations as we go through life codependently or otherwise. If we get stuck on an emotional interaction with someone, it has as much to do with us as it does with them. This can be at work. It can be anywhere. It can be at our kids' school. It can be at our job. It can be with our neighbors. Anything that reminds us of our own unsolved or unhealed wounds will be a codependency trigger for us. Talk us through that at a practical level. Can you just explain what the issue you might be carrying around is and how it gets triggered and then how we behave codependently? Can you talk us through that scenario? All right. If we had an extremely controlling parent, or even a narcissistic parent, let's use that, that always clomped down on us what they were right, we were wrong, we couldn't think what was wrong with us. If we encounter another person like that at work or through dating, we're going to get extremely triggered, not just by the person, but by the reminders from our childhood. However, if we have not dealt with these reminders that are still living inside of us, we'll just stay there and we'll keep interacting with that person until we get it, hmm. whether it's healthy or not. And how do we react when we're triggered, typically, when we're codependent? Well, usually not in a very graceful way. Huh. There is not one reaction with codependency, but we can stuff it. We can go away with it. We can feel privately outraged. How dare they do that to me? How dare they say that to me? Or we can get into our victim mode. Hmm. Why does this always happen to me? Why do I always get stuck with people like that? But there's so many different emotions that can be part of a trigger, but they're usually not ones we would consider pleasant ones. Do you see patterns of people sometimes working for the same kind of boss who triggers them and reminds them of someone in their past and always having that sense of, why does this keep happening to me? Mm -hmm. We will keep growing the same flowers that we're familiar with in our life. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and until we go inside and heals that part of us. Yeah. I know addiction is a big word, so I'm hesitant to use it. But go ahead. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of us who were raised in insecure experiences, you know, we, we get addicted to performance, we get addicted to 
praise. We get addicted to ambition, to certain kinds of energy. And that creates a very codependent cycle as well, right? That's all we know how to do is is respond to a certain stimulus because that's all we've ever done. Yeah, we're not very self-actuating, self-actualizing. And many of us haven't taken agency over ourselves. We do not know how to regulate our own emotions, especially after the last three years. I mean, we're not living in ordinary times at all. And the other thing is we're never going back. We're going to go forward. So what I'm really hoping is that people aren't getting all anxious and going to run out and try and recreate what they had overnight because it's not going to work. We have been pushing too hard and too much, just pushing and not even that focused on why am I pushing so hard? Is this even getting me what I want? Is this even what I want to keep pushing? Or am I just pushing out of habit or addiction, as you say? How do we begin to realize and understand what we want? I think that is very, very hard. Well, you're probably not going to like my answers because they're pretty boring. But I have only found a few ways to get in touch with my soul. Hmm. Nature, yoga, prayer, and meditation as regular practices of being quiet and connecting with my own soul. It's so important with all the computers, with all the electronics, with all the electricity out there, connecting our energies to every other energy in the world. We need our private time to cultivate our own garden, Hmm. not someone else's garden, not reacting to what someone else wants, but to get to know and love ourselves. It can feel so awkward and unpleasant at first. (laughs) It, it it really can. I mean, I feel like that's why a lot of us just go to Instagram or TikTok instead. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we're we provided with so many diversions right now. Mm-hmm. And anytime we do a diversion, it's not going to work. It's going to leave us just a little more anxious than we were before we did it. What is attachment style? You know, I've had a couple of listeners ask me, what happens when I work with someone who has an insecure attachment style. And I don't know the answer to that. Well, I don't really either. I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about. Um, I mean, right now, we're so quick to label other people and label everything they do as anything but a human behavior. (laughs) (laughs) But if someone, I'm assuming she might mean, your friend might mean, well, they're being very needy. Mm Mm-hmm. They didn't get what they needed as a child. And so, you know. Yeah, they're in more of a victim mode in there. Well, if I play needy, this person will feel sorry for me and will help me out. And it can be very annoying. Is that always a victim mode? What makes a person a victim? Their story, the way they have ended their story and the way they keep telling it to themselves. Hmm. It's very hard, though. To have that real conversation with yourself to, to say, Oh my gosh, I'm playing a victim here. That's how do you even get to that? None of these conversations are ever that pleasant initially. Right. But right. once we surrender, we go, Oh my God, why didn't I do this years ago? Surrendering is the hardest part. 
the prayer I use for that is, God, please help me face the truth. And and then I get quiet. And I have had some of the most upsetting moments in my life after I prayed that prayer, but ultimately it turned into something positive. I feel like so many of us, myself included, you know, we just we just act out. We act out childhood hurts. And oftentimes the behaviors that are codependent are rewarded mm-hmm. in our current work system. Do you agree with that? Can you talk about that? A good codependent is a great employee. Why? They'll never say no. They'll never talk back to us. They'll do everything we ask, whether it's what they want to do or not. I mean, <laughs> we, we can lead them around on a chain. <laughs> it's true. It's true because they don't have regard for themselves or what they need. No, they will completely surrender to our will. Yeah. As employees. And that's never good. I want a fully functioning human being working for me. (laughs) I really do prefer that. So I'd love you to share in the new edition some of the new recovery ideas that you present or the way that your, your thinking has evolved on taking the steps to recovering from codependence. Well, some of it is very similar to your podcast. It's about confronting our anxiety and our PTSD first. Many of us are so battered by PTSD and don't even really know it. I mean, I was. When my son died in a ski accident on his 12th birthday, it was never interpreted to me what happened to me as PTSD. I just sucked it right into that very, well, and that's a long process too. Grief is not codependency, although the two are very very connected. So I I feel really good about the work I did on the new chapter in the book. I revised in many of the old stories. I hedged on telling them because the other people in the stories were still alive. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have really the right to tell on other people in a way that was hurtful to them. Um, Enough time has passed. I am now about to turn 75. So I told the stories the way they happened, with love, but the way they happened, which I'm hoping will be more effective for people. The other thing we did in this book that I feel very proud of is the publisher helped assemble such a great chapter of resources. Mm. I mean, instant resources in the areas of mental health. And I'm very excited about that. I think that's going to be one of our biggest problems as we all set to rebuilding the new earth, dealing with the mental health issues that cropped up during COVID. Yes, the huge amount of anxiety. Melody, at its most basic level, what is the relationship between anxiety and codependence? They live with each other. They're best friends. (laughs) Why? Well, if you've grown up in an alcoholic family, if you've grown up in a, in a profoundly codependent environment, you are going to have anxiety because you're always worried about you're ready for fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of you all the time that's not present that's trying to figure out, which is controlling, how we can keep ourselves safe. So I think it's pretty difficult to talk about recovering from codependency until we identify our anxiety. 
I see that anxiety is a real driver for controlling, for caretaking, for not having boundaries. If we don't have a boundary, if we say yes to everything, the only person we're going to anger is ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have to protect against others. But what we do is we, with any of the codependent behaviors, we end up taking such a battering that we start running out of ourselves. There's just not that much left of us. We feel like there's maybe nothing in there if we look deeply. And the anxiety is because things aren't going to be okay. We're not going to be safe. Sometimes the anxiety is just habitual. Yeah, that's true. We talk about that a lot. It's just a habitual response to being around people or to waking up every day. Mm -hmm. After a certain point, it doesn't have to be activated by anything. It's just there. I um I had an aha moment because <laughs> one of the weird things about my childhood was that my parents who when they wouldn't speak to each other would shuttle me and my sister on public transportation to see you know from my mom to my dad and sometimes that public transportation was very sketchy you know this was the 80s in mm-hmm. the New York City metropolitan oh, area wow. yeah yeah I, there were no phones and I felt that I had to be hypervigilant because I had to take care of my sister. And I have never stopped feeling that feeling. And it is particularly triggered, ironically, by transportation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so when I travel, even though I love to travel, I often am extremely hypervigilant. And when I drive, and, and I'm hypervigilant all the time at work, in relationships, it is an anxiety that is like oxygen to me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Sometimes we may even use our anxiety to fuel ourselves. Yes. As fuel, because if we're feeling down or depressed, a good dose of anxiety will get us up and performing, won't it? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And that can be great sometimes. It can be great, except it really ultimately takes its toll on our body. Yes. It would be nice if we could find another motivator that's more gentle, which is mm-hmm. actually not my next book. My next book is going to be a workbook for all this. But the book after that is, um, I'm calling it Living by Spirit. Mm. And it's about learning a gentler way of being in our world with everything telling us you can't be gentle. What's your gentler motivator? The things I told you earlier that I said you would like to hear. (laughs) Just getting quiet, making that my practice to go inside myself and get quiet and then act, to act less and to be more. All these woo-woo things, it, it is time to put them into practice as we build this new earth because anxiety based or formed ideas are not going to go over as well as spirit-filled ideas and spirit-filled actions and actions coming from a place of quiet and truth. If people have one honest thing they can say or do right now, multitasking is our great enemy. Mm. It seriously is because we multitask and multitask and many of us left our soul behind like 10 miles before on this journey. We're just tasking. If we could put even one-tenth of that energy into being, 
we'll find a huge difference. And the universe is going to support us with this too. It is. As things change in our world, which they are and which they do, we will find taking those kinds of actions much more greatly rewarded than the anxiety-based behaviors that have driven us in the past. Is it possible to be driven by spirit in corporate America? The honest answer is, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) My best friend, uh, I talked to her this morning before the podcast, and Mm -hmm. she's been working for it's it's a tech-based company. It runs on tech. It runs on the current corporate motto of over-promise and under-deliver. <laughs> and she's had to work there for a, a short period of time, and she's just been really upset with that. And then she manifested a new opportunity for herself, and she is so excited about that. <laughs> So the honest answer to that question is, I don't know, but I know this. No matter where we find ourselves, what company we're working for, who the people we work with that bug us most are, we can try to make it a bit better by acting in spirit and acting with grace and not reacting. Reacting is our greatest enemy. Mm. Our greatest enemy. If we can learn to pause, to be quiet, and not feel this undying need to speak our opinion and tell other people why theirs is wrong, we can possibly transform corporations. I don't know. But it will be by the individuals working in them, by their behaviors, by what they're bringing. Mm, That's interesting. I'm not sure I agree, but I think it's interesting. Well, I I don't know. I I remember I'm (laughs) tempering this all with an I don't know. I think that's it, though. Also being open to saying I don't know. Well, those are the three (laughs) most powerful words we can ever say. Yeah. And it's just like the kiss of death in our world right now. Everyone wants to know whether they do or not. Well, we'll know when we know, won't we? (laughs) But when we're anxious, we really want to know. We want to know right now, even if it's wrong. Yeah. We do. And like I said at the beginning of this interview, anxiety, I think, is a real pandemic right now. And then we, I mean, we're all connected with our computers, with our cell phones. We're all wired in to the nervous systems of pretty much every other human on this planet right now, except for the rare bird who doesn't have a cell phone. So to close here, Melody, what is what is one thing a listener can do? right now, to start moving towards a place where being quiet is okay? Maybe the easiest way is to start journaling. Mm. Every day, make a few notes on how you really feel. Who are you? What do you want? And where do you want to go? And if you don't know, for the love of God, say, I don't know. (laughs) We need to get back to this fundamental core honesty and not just over-promising and under-delivering. It's become so popular in our world. Yes, or over-promising and over-delivering, which is the sometimes the anxious person's special. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very good at over-performing and always performing for someone else's benefit. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you for having me. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.